As we continue our, our sermon series here, I just want to really show the, the, the shift in the focus. So much of this up to this point has been Jesus preparing for what was about to come. And now as it's, it's kind of looming, we're seeing him actually go through many of these trials. And today we're going to read about the arrest and the trial of Jesus. And so far we've seen him uh, be anointed for burial uh, days before this. Now, just hours before this, uh, we, we read about the Last Supper. And last week we talked about this prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane as he's knowing what's coming soon. And we see now, today, why Jesus had to take so much time to prepare himself for the trials ahead. That nothing would be easy, nothing would be fair. And our, our sermon today is really kind of in two parts, in the arrest and in the trial. And in this arrest, we see that there's this, this real sting of betrayal by a friend of his, one of the 12, Judas, who he loved and he spent so much of his life with, now is turning him over to the authorities. And that he's on this trial with the high priests and the Sanhedrin, this trial that was disjointed and rigged from top to bottom, that he was given a penalty of death that he did not deserve, one, one reserved only for criminals. But Jesus, as we'll read today, did all of this willingly. And that's what the theme has been through this series, that none of this was a surprise and none of this was out of his control. He marched to that cross willingly and boldly. He did it out of great love for every single one of us. And so as we are about to read here, if you open up your Bibles to Matthew 26, we're going to read first uh, just uh, the first few verses, starting with, with, uh, with verse 47. But let's pray today. Because I think this story we're about to read reveals the full love of Christ for the church. And I'm just going to pray that we would learn that today. So pray with me. So God, as we read today about this arrest and this trial that you went through, uh, knowing, God, we live in a world that's just rooted on what's fair and what's just. None of this was fair. None of this was just. And you did so willingly out of your great love for each and every one of us who did not deserve this. So today, God, as we read this text, as we study your character, your example, what you did, may you bring us to a deeper understanding of your love that led you to the cross for us. So bless this time, Lord. Holy Spirit, speak through these words and into each and every one of us. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Read with me now uh, verses 47 through 56. While he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived. With him was a large crowd, armed with swords and clubs, sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him. Going at once to, Ju to Jesus, Judas said, Greetings, Rabbi, and kissed him. Jesus replied, do what you came for, friend. Then the men stepped forward, seized Jesus, and arrested him. With that, one of Jesus' companions reached for his sword, drew it out, and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels. But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen in this way? 
In that hour, Jesus said to the crowd, Am I leading a rebellion that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I sat in the temple courts teaching, and you did not arrest me. But this has all taken place, that the writings of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples deserted him and fled. Now what we read here in this arrest of Jesus is a few things. One, it's, it's completely unfair that we talked about, but this is really the beginning of it all. This arrest that Jesus had told the disciples would happen, this betrayal that he would be handed over by his own people to the Romans to be crucified. It's the beginning of his physical pain and this betrayal, this injustice, what he was praying and wrestling through just moments before in the garden. What we read is that Judas, one of the twelve, had come to betray him exactly as he had predicted earlier that evening at the Last Supper. And this is important to note that Jesus knew this would happen. His last words that we read last week was, let us go, rise, here comes my betrayer. And what we just read this week is while he was still speaking that, Judas came with these armed guards to hand him over. We don't have much time to work through this first part of the sermon today, but I really have three points of application I hope we can take out of this. And the first, as we look at Judas handing over Jesus to these guards, is that, every, or that outwardly virtuous acts are not always done out of love for Jesus. Now, we live in a society where what we see on the outside is often most important And we live in a society now where people can kind of promote themselves in ways through social media, through just the influence people have. And and oftentimes it's important to show yourself as virtuous and good and moral. And we hold those people up in high regard oftentimes. One of the things that Jesus said consistently through the scriptures, and especially in the Sermon on the Mount, is that what you do on the outside is not as important as what's on the inside. The condition of your heart The motives for your actions are more important than the actions themselves. So we cannot focus only on what happens on the outside. Because the sign that Judas used to turn over Jesus was actually a sign of great respect, of utmost respect. That when you kissed a rabbi, this was not a common everyday occurrence. It was one that showed great honor and respect For the teacher, and Judas even calls Jesus rabbi here. For whatever reason, he chose a signal to these temple guards that really outwardly showed a love and respect for Jesus. But this was not done out of love for Jesus. It was done out of love for himself. For the reward he received, these 30 pieces of silver, to hand Jesus over. And that readers of this time who understood this cultural uh, context would really be appalled that Judas would have done this as he was handing him over. This would have been the most heinous act against Jesus. And Jesus, in a sense, kind of calls this out when he says, do what you came for, friend. In other words, you're doing this, it looks like you're honoring me, but do what you really came here to do. You're not here to love me. You're here to turn me over. Jesus is not interested in lip service or in meaningless gestures from his followers. We don't know why Judas did this. Was this a sense to ease his conscience? 
that if they did something that was outwardly good, maybe it would help him wrestle with what's going on in his heart. And we know that hours after he betrayed Jesus, this hit Judas very hard, to the point that he was stricken with grief, that he threw down these silver pieces and he hung himself because of what had happened. But Jesus here is highlighting the extent of the hypocrisy of Judas. That we should learn, first of all, that things are not always as they seem. What we see on the outside is not always what's happening on the inside. And that brings us to the next point of application here. That we must not fight kingdom battles in our own way. And so one side of the coin, we see Judas, who's betraying Jesus with this outwardly virtuous act. And now we have this other disciple who's now actually working against Jesus with what he thought was a virtuous act. And the disciple in question here is Peter. We, we learned that through the Gospel of John, that Peter was the disciple. The temple guard was named Malchus. And we don't know much about this guy except he's named there in John. But, but Peter, thinking that he is defending Jesus, is now drawing his sword on this guard. And he swings and he cuts off his ear. And Jesus says, put your sword away. That is not the battle we're fighting here today. And it brings to mind that principle we understand that as Christians, our battle is not against flesh and blood. We're not here to fight one another. And we fight many battles in this life. Now, some of them we don't choose. They're just given to us in some ways. But most of them, I believe, we do choose. We often choose these hills to die on, so to speak, in these battles we fight, but we have to ask ourselves, is this a battle of the kingdom? Is this God's battle for us to fight? And are we fighting it in the right way? Now, we understand that Peter thinks he's doing what's right, but Peter is actually working out of fear here. What he's thinking is, if I don't fight this battle, if I don't defend Jesus in this moment, he will lose we will lose. And so he identifies his enemy, he draws his sword, and now he's fighting with violence. And that's the earthly way. That's the earthly battles we fight, is, is to identify those enemies, to take them down, to force them to conform. We change them from the outside in. We, we come up with this idea that they should fit these certain rules or, or they should fit this paradigm of, of our belief and that will change them from the outside in. But the way of the kingdom is different. Jesus came to change people from the inside out. That there are no enemies of the church. There's prospective friends. We're not here to identify our enemy and destroy them. We're here to win souls. And so much of our life is, is fought that way. That we should just force people. We should use this coercion to convert people to our way of thinking. But that's not what we're to do. We're to rely on the Holy Spirit to change people. We get that same mentality of Peter at times. That we live with that fear that I need to fight this battle or the church will lose. I need to do this or I'm going to let down my Savior. And I need to protect my Lord, my church, from those enemies out there. But we forget 
that we have no more right to be a part of this church than those so-called enemies. Nobody deserves the grace of God. And that's why Jesus calls us to lay down our swords, to love our enemies, because they have as equal stake to the church as we do. Now, we have to make sure that we don't tolerate evil. We can't just ignore evil, but we have to understand that every person is capable of evil, but the Lord is capable of changing any person. Change in the kingdom comes from the inside out. And so Jesus rebukes Peter here, kind of threefold. We'll go through it quickly. He said, put away your sword, because if you live by the sword, you'll die by the sword. And that's the lesson we learn with kingdom battles. If we, for, if we fight them through force, they could easily be done by the same force by someone else. It's not our flesh battling against another flesh, but we trust in what the Spirit can do. We also understand, and this is important here, God doesn't need our help. God doesn't need our help. The amazing part is that he asks for our help, but he doesn't need it. Essentially, what Jesus is saying is, I cannot lose. Now, whatever situation you're thinking of in this life, this battle you're fighting, you think, I have to do this or the church will lose. Remember these words. God cannot lose. He does not lose. And he says here, I could call on the Father and bring down more than 12 legions of angels to fight for me if I wanted to. Now, a legion was 6,000 soldiers. And we know from the Old Testament that these, these angelic forces, these, these angel armies were invincible. And now Jesus is saying, I, I could not just call down a legion for each one of us here, but I could call down more if I wanted. God does not lose. Okay, so whatever battle you think you're fighting, that God needs you to do this and you must force this battle in or the church will lose, that's not the case. Cannot fight the kingdom battles in our way because above all, this is the third part of the rebuke. Peter, if you fight this, how are things going to happen to fulfill the scriptures? Jesus has already settled that this is the will of the Father. This is the way to the cross. And we're so convinced at times that our way is the right way. That if this doesn't happen, God will lose. He cannot lose, and he has a will that is above our own. Do you know for sure what you're fighting for? That's the importance of wrestling through these things in prayer like Jesus did in the garden before this moment. Finding God's will, resting in his peace, knowing that he cannot lose. You see the difference here? Between the way Jesus is approaching this trial and Peter is, Peter is filled with fear. If I don't do this, God will lose. Our battle is not to destroy our enemies, but to love our enemies, because Jesus went to the cross for everyone. And what he does next with this temple guard is amazing. We don't see it in this account. We actually see it in the account of Luke, that he restores to him the ear that was cut off. Now, it's important to note Peter wasn't probably aiming for the ear. I'm sure he's aiming for the throat. And Jesus would have restored him then too. But, but the ear, you think about it, he could have lived without an ear. Well, one thing we don't know for sure is, is what tribe this, this temple guard came from. He could have been a Levite. And one of the, the laws of the land is that Levites couldn't serve in the temple if they had any part of their body missing. Peter may have taken away this whole man's life. But Jesus, when he restored that ear, restored this man to his former life. That's 
the mission and the battle of Jesus. It's not to destroy, but to restore. And that's the battle we fight as Christians. Do not fight the kingdom battles in your own way. So ask yourself, what sword do you have drawn? Is that the sword that you're supposed to have drawn? Is Jesus asking you to put it away? Are you fighting the right battle? And are you fighting it in the right way? And this third point I'm going to just hit quickly as we go into the second part of our sermon today. That Jesus recognizes the injustice that's happening here. He even voices it. But he continues his journey to the cross. Now we are a culture that, is, uh, that views justice as the highest virtue. And that's, that's not a bad thing. I think justice is, is important. We should all seek justice, especially as Christians. But there will be parts of this life, especially as a Christian, that are unfair. No one promised that every part of life would be fair. And Jesus knew that what was about to happen was completely unfair, but he continued. And that's where he said, hey, look, I've been teaching in the temples all week and there hasn't been a problem. And now all of a sudden, you have these armed guards coming up and be like, I'm some sort of criminal or a revolutionary or a robber. But I'll go anyway so that the writings of the prophets might be fulfilled. He knows it's unfair. And it's important to keep in mind as we get to the next part, as we study the trial. I want to ask you, have you ever had anything unfair happen to you? Blamed for something you didn't do? Had your own words twisted and used against you? I think it's something we can all identify with in some ways. And as I was preparing for the sermon this week, it brought to mind an example of the one blemish I had in my record in, in school. As I was a kid that followed the rules, I was on time for everything, I never had a tardy, I never had an unexcused absence, but I had two days of detention in eighth grade for something I didn't do. And I remember I was taking a test, it's one of those you know, bubble sheet tests, and all of the students were facing forward, and, and the teacher was in the back behind us, and two of my classmates were giggling to each other throughout the whole test, and so naturally it was distracting, and I kept looking over at them every time they giggled. And the teacher said, Dominic, why don't you move to that empty desk over there? And my first thought was like, wow. Of all the kids that are getting distracted in class, she thought about me first. Like, I felt pretty special that she wanted me to go move away from the distractions. And I'm doing my test after a couple of minutes, I realized, wait a second. She thought I was the instigator, and, and I'd never felt the feeling of being in trouble before. So I'm getting nervous and, and, and uh, pushing really hard on my pencil, so the tip of my pencil breaks off as I'm taking the test. And where were my spare pencils? At the desk that I just left. So now I'm forced with a decision. I'm, you're supposed to have spare, tens, pencils, uh, spare pencils for your test, and I have to walk up to, to sharpen my pencil, and, and so I nervously walk over, and as soon as I turn around, these two kids start laughing again. And the teacher says, enough, Dominic, detention after school today. And I just looked at her and I said, what? I was just sharpening my pencil. Fine, two days of detention. <laughs> at that point, I knew I just had to be silent and go back to my desk and finish my test. And my dad picked me up that day after school and he said, what did you do? I said, honestly, I have no idea. No idea. And we cleared it up. I didn't get the second day of detention after all. But we, I know this seems trivial in the end, and, and I was really hoping when I applied for work here that this wouldn't show up on my background check. Uh, I, was in, I was in the clear. 
But we've all had these things happen to us in many ways, and, and oftentimes with way more drastic results. There's a lot of unfair things that happen to us. So I want to let you know, if you've ever been treated unfairly, take comfort in this. Jesus knows exactly what you're going through. He knows what it's like to be mistreated, to be judged unjustly, and we see this very clearly in the trial we're about to read before Caiaphas and the priests. This is the most twisted case of injustice in all of human history. Nothing compares to the way Jesus was treated here. So let's read together now, verses 57 through 68. Those who had arrested Jesus took him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the teachers of the law and the elders had assembled. But Peter followed him at a distance right up to the courtyard of the high priest. And he entered and sat down with the guards to see the outcome. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death. But they did not find any, though many false witnesses came forward. Finally, two came forward and declared, This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent. Then the high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. You have said so, Jesus replied. But I say to all of you, from now on you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, he has spoken blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? Look, now you have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? He is worthy of death, they answered. Then they spit in his face and struck him with their fists. Others slapped him and said, prophesy to us, Messiah, who hit you? Now this, from top to bottom, was a hastily prepared, rushed trial. And we see here that, in all things, this is an unfair trial. That they arrested Jesus without cause and brought him to this house of Caiaphas, the high priest, for a trial. Now, a lot of this was rushed because Jesus had just identified Judas as the betrayer at the Last Supper. This was just hours before. And he rushed out of that, and while they're praying in the garden, Judas must have been saying to these people, he's on to us. We've got to move, and we've got to move now. Initially, they had, uh, had intended to wait until after the Passover festival was done before they would address Jesus, but now they rushed into it. And we know is that virtually every aspect of this trial was illegal under Jewish law. There's so much wrong with this picture, and we're talking about that more as we go through it, but experts in the Jewish law said that there's no less than 14 aspects of this trial that were illegal. In fact, there's really nothing about this that was legal. All trials were to be held in the temple courts in public, but instead they held it in the closed house of Caiaphas. Night trials were extremely rare, and there was only one case in which you could never have a night trial. And we're here into the wee hours of night. But the one case you can't have a night trial 
is for a capital offense, but here they were. And with a capital trial, you could not give a guilty verdict the same day as the trial. You had to wait until the next day. But they gave the guilty verdict in this. You couldn't hold a trial like this during a festival. And there's more to come as we go through, but we see here this is the wrong place, the wrong time, the wrong charges against the wrong person. But it did not stop them. It was illegal and unfair from top to bottom. But who were them? Who were these people that were holding Jesus here in this room? It's probably the same people that we read back in verse 3 that were scheming to arrest and kill Jesus. And we read about Caiaphas, the high priest. Now, a bit about Caiaphas is he was not the true high priest. He was not the one appointed. It was actually his father-in-law, Annas. But when the Romans came in, as we talked about, they stripped the high priest of their power and they gave an annual office. And Caiaphas is actually the one appointed by the Romans. So even of the people, they didn't really view Caiaphas. Some didn't view him as the true high priest. There were teachers of the law, maybe some of the same teachers that Jesus would refute, and elders that assembled. These were really members of the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin was the highest Jewish council. They were the ultimate authority. It consisted of 71 people. I don't believe all 71 were here. Probably just a quorum, which is around 30 people. But we see here that this group had come with an outcome already determined. They're just looking for the evidence to convict him. And on the other side of that, we see kind of a, a side note and a sad note that Peter had followed Jesus at a distance and is now sitting in the courtyard outside of this house with the guards. Peter was preparing himself for his trial that was, was to come. And it's in this courtyard that he's sitting right now that he would deny Jesus three times, just as was predicted. And that's kind of a, uh, an example for us that we never deny Jesus all at once. It starts with following him at a distance, by small compromises, by trusting in ourselves and putting ourselves in situations we shouldn't be in. It's, it's a progression. And even after his intentions and his words to Jesus of this undying devotion to him, he's now in the place that he could soon fail and deny Jesus. And a reminder that the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. What we see here in, in verse uh, 59, that they were looking for any evidence, true or false, to support their predetermined outcome. This was a rigged trial from top to bottom. They weren't sure what Jesus was guilty of yet, but they knew he, they wanted him to die. In a court today, we have this sense of being innocent until proven guilty, or that there's evidence beyond uh, any measure of reasonable doubt. But that didn't matter to them. All they wanted was for Jesus to go away. The problem now is that they had no evidence of anything. It's another soliciting in the wee hours of night these witnesses. And they're calling people in. Do you have anything we can hold against this man? They're not even sure of the charges. And now in this trial, they're trying to find the charges. In the other Gospels, we understand that these testimonies didn't work because none of them agreed with one another. It shows how rushed and sloppy this was. They just wanted a conviction before any sense of justice. Now, one thing the Jewish law did state is that any false witnesses in a capital offense were punishable by death. But that wasn't upheld here. There's many witnesses that we understand came forward and didn't stick until one. They kind of got the smoking gun here, so to speak, in verse 61. 
Now, finally, two came forward and declared, this fellow said, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. We see here that the words of Jesus were actually twisted and used against him by these witnesses. Now, if this is true, this would certainly be concerning for this Sanhedrin that somebody claimed they were going to destroy the temple. The problem here is that Jesus never said this. He said something like it back in John, uh, John chapter 2. He was talking to others. They said, if you destroy this temple, speaking of himself, I will raise it again in three days. And John even mentions that the temple he was speaking about was his own body. Now these two are using these words of Jesus, twisting them, taking them out of context. But the fact is, they only needed two witnesses to agree on something in a trial like this, and they found it. They don't even care what it was they were agreeing on. And that's the great irony of all this, is that what they're accusing Jesus of doing is actually exactly what he did. That he went to the cross and he raised himself from the dead. He died on the cross because partly of this testimony. And it's, it's clear now, though, that none of this was fair, none of it was just. Jesus was arrested like a violent criminal in the veil of night. He was subjected to a trial that was illegal in virtually every way with a predetermined outcome. He had his own words twisted and used against him. And at this moment, Jesus had every legal and logical right to defend himself against these false claims, to set the record straight. And the amazing part is that he did not. He responded in a way that's hard for us to comprehend, that he became a silent defendant. And what we see here tells us a lot about Jesus, but also about Caiaphas. This upset and frustrated Caiaphas he stood up. He said to Jesus, are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? We see that Jesus here remained silent. Now Caiaphas was obviously frustrated because when we read here that he stood up, this was highly unusual for a president of any assembly to be standing. But he did it to confront Jesus. And here we see this great face-off. Now, it's not written in the text here, but what we understand later in the book of Hebrews is this is actually a face-off between two high priests. You have the fake high priest in a lot of ways, Caiaphas, that represents all of these earthly battles. And you have Jesus, the great and the final high priest, which represents all of the kingdom battles. We're told that this Messiah would come to end this line of high priests. And here we have one that's frustrated and antagonizing Jesus and Jesus who remains silent. And there's probably a few reasons. One is that anything he says at this point is only going to incriminate him more. There's no way he can respond to this in a way that helps him. Kind of like me holding my sharpened pencil, realizing I can't say anything anymore. And you sit down. You also understand that this is a fulfillment of Scripture that Isaiah 53, 7 says that he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before its shearers and is silent. So he did not open his mouth. I really believe here Jesus refused to defend himself because his sights were set on the cross. 
He already fought the battle that mattered in the garden. And now he understands the will of God, that it was his purpose to go to the cross. This was not his battle to fight. There's no reason to defend himself in this moment. It was the Father's will that he would die by the Romans. And his death would mean the forgiveness of sins of the world, including those who testified against him falsely. So what did any of this matter at this point? The sinless Son of God stood before his false accusers, knowing he had come to die. There is no battle to fight here. And this took incredible strength, determination, and resolve, which I don't believe any of us could do. So now Caiaphas advances this even more. And he puts him under an oath, not just any oath, but the highest oath. And he said, I charge you under oath, or I adjure you, by the living God, tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. Now this is a procedural tactic that he used. If, if Jesus wasn't going to incriminate himself, we're going to use this procedure to trap Jesus into giving a no-win answer. No way Jesus' response to this is going to be a win. Because either he'd say that's not true and his movement would end, because he's no longer the Messiah, or he says it is true and he's going to be charged for blasphemy. Now this is another thing that was illegal by the high priest. You could use these oaths in a trial, but only for witnesses, not for the defendant. You couldn't force them to incriminate themselves. But that didn't much matter to him at this point. Now, I think what's important to note is that Jesus chose his words very wisely through all of this. He knew the battles that there were to fight. And the words he shares next are some of the most important in all of the scripture. And we'll explain why. But we see here, as we finish out these verses today, the testimony of Christ. And the first thing he says to them, it says to Caiaphas, is you have said so. He said, tell me if you're the Messiah, the Son of God. And Jesus' way of saying is, well, those are the words you would use. That's your way of saying it. Because it's important here, Caiaphas is still speaking in an earthly way. Those who claimed to be the Messiah before Jesus were often revolutionaries. There are people there to pick a fight, to establish some sort of earthly control. And they believed themselves maybe to be divine in nature, but they were only blasphemous. That's what Caiaphas is asking Jesus here. Are you one of those revolutionaries, one of those that believes you're really the son of God, that you're divine in nature, but you're just a blasphemer? So Jesus' response to that is that's your way of putting it. But the testimony he gives now under the highest oath in front of the highest council is exactly who he is, and it's way more than what Caiaphas was asserting. It's a key moment that gives me chills to think about it. That so often Jesus had kept his identity a secret. He told people to keep quiet about the miracles he did. And he spoke most openly only with his disciples. But now the hour has come. And for the first time, for the people outside of his group of disciples, he shares exactly who he is under the highest oath before the highest council. He says to them, from now on, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. 
And essentially what he's saying is you were asserting that I was some earthly temporary Messiah. I'm telling you, I am a divine, eternal, cosmic ruler. Above and beyond all creation, but especially you. There's kind of a threefold part of this testimony that he gives. And when he uses the words or the title, Son of Man, this again is one of those uh, titles that he, he used often of himself. But this is rooted in the Old Testament, primarily in Daniel 7, where it talks about the Son of Man who would come. And it reveals the extent of his power, the extent of his honor, and the extent of his reign. And first, that, that the Son of Man, as we read in the book of Daniel, is given all authority, glory, and sovereign power. The Son of Man comes with the power of God. The extent of his honor here, as we read, is that he'll be sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One, or the right hand of power, which is one of the words or one of the, the names they used for God. And this is the highest place of honor, not on earth, but of eternity in the heavens that all nations and people of every language would worship him. And not just now, but the extent of his reign is eternal forever. That is dominion. This is from the book of Daniel again. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Now they knew the context of what he was saying and the extent of his claims. The most offensive part of this for them were Jesus' words from now on, which literally means from this point forward. He's telling them, you think you have power and control over the situation, but from here on out, I'm the one in control. You think you're judging me, but in the end, I'll be the one that judges you. And here in this first open statement of Jesus, of who he is, he makes claims on a different level that he's a Christ beyond what they could even comprehend and imagine. And in so doing, he presents to Caiaphas a weapon to use against him that he could have never dreamed of. Because he accuses Jesus now of blasphemy. He says, that then the high priest tore his clothes and said, he has spoken blasphemy. Why do we need more witnesses? Essentially, everything those people said before, forget it. Listen to his words. Look, you have heard the blasphemy too. What do you think? Now, blasphemy, this is about the only part of the trial that resembled some sort of legal proceeding. Blasphemy was a high crime. And we read in the book of Deuteronomy that it, that it was deserving of death. But the problem here is that this wasn't blasphemy in the legal sense. You had to use the uh, proper or the highest name of God that we know as Yahweh. He uses the word mighty one or power, but that didn't matter much to Caiaphas. He had what he needed and he was using it against Jesus. And he turns to the court and said, you heard that too, right? What do you think? The high priest himself couldn't convict Jesus. He needed the votes from this Sanhedrin. And they all responded, in unison, as we read, he is worthy of death. The sentence had been given to Jesus. The problem is this was true. And he would prove that later on the cross and on the resurrection. There was no crime that Jesus had committed. And though it was not legal to decide the verdict now, it wouldn't have been legal until the next day, which technically would have been the Sabbath. They did so anyway because they wanted Jesus 
gone. They rushed it through. In just a few hours, they bring this to the Roman government who is ultimately responsible for upholding the capital offense for Jesus. We see just a few verses that show the suffering that's starting from Jesus in the end, verses 67 and 68, that they spit in his face, they struck him with their fists, and others slapped him and said, prophesy to us, tell us who hit you. Now in the other Gospels, we understand that the the temple guards were the ones who blindfolded him and mistreated him this way, but here it almost appears as though they're talking about these high priests, the Sanhedrin and the judges, and it's likely that both had done that. Now I wonder if this is one of those moments where the judges are either, uh, these priests are doubling down on their conviction of Jesus, or maybe they're testing if this is true or not, if he really is the Messiah. And to spit on someone is to refute their claim of authority, to, to call them lowly or the dirge of society. To hit them would to illustrate that they have physical power over them. And to ask, them, ask him to prophesy who hit you, maybe testing him, is this guy really a prophet or not? Was this their test to find out if their, if their judgment was accurate? Or maybe it was just fueled out of hatred for them. We, we don't know, but whatever the reason, this is one final example of an illegal proceeding. Abuse and mistreatment of a prisoner was not allowed under both the Jewish and the Roman law. But it didn't much matter to them. This is the beginning of the mistreatment and the abuse of Jesus and just a taste of all the suffering that would come. The cross was looming and his time was near. And this is, in many ways, at least for me, it's tough stuff to read through and reconcile. <laughs> you know, we, we see the other side of the cross, we remember the resurrection, but we forget how unfair the suffering was for Jesus. He didn't deserve any of this. But we remember that he did it for a reason. He did it for us. And this is just a fraction of the true suffering that we deserve. But he did it out of love for every person that we place our faith in him and understand that he took this penalty. What he's about to do is our penalty on the cross. So I really want to ask you today, again, that same idea. The good fight that we're called to fight, are, are you fighting the right battle? Are you fighting it in the right way? Are you marking your enemies and seeking to destroy them? Or are you loving them and pointing them to the same cross that we kneel before? Knowing that what Jesus did, he did for the whole world. We remember God doesn't lose. We're called to win others for him. We also know that when we're treated unjustly and unfairly, which you will, you will in this life in many ways, and all of us at different levels, don't seek revenge. Revenge is not the way of the Lord. The Apostle Peter, who saw this all happen, writes later in his letter, his epistle, 1 Peter 2. He remembers the suffering that Jesus went through. He, and he, he was basically telling his readers that we're all going to go through similar sufferings but, sufferings, but he says, to this you were called, to the suffering you were called, he's talking about, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin. No deceit was found in his mouth. 
And when they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Retaliation is the earthly way. We should never long to repay evil with evil, but trust the Lord who comes to judge justly. That's the end, is really just trust this all to Jesus. There is a lot of evil in this world. We can all agree on that. We should never condone it. We should never love it. But we should rest in the peace knowing that Jesus will judge the world justly one day and we will all be silent before him. He was silent before this judge and jury. One day, as the book of Romans says, we will be silent before him. And he judges everyone fairly. Caiaphas will be there. These high priests will be here. Every enemy you can think of in this world will be there. You and I will be here, be there as well. But the only way to receive the righteousness of Christ at that judgment is to believe in him, to trust in him, to know that what he did on the cross was for each and every one of us. The judge will be our friend if you love him above all. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for this message. And, and as I said, it's, it's often tough for me to read through as we really grapple with all you wrestled through. But God, the suffering, the injustice, it's all done with a purpose. And so God, I pray that we trust not in our power and our might and our understanding of the world and everything, but knowing, God, we can trust you in all things because you don't lose You will win. And in the final time, you'll set all things right. So God, I pray that we would fight your battles your way and trust you above all that what you did on the cross was for a great purpose, for your love for the world, that we can be judged by you in a way that you call us friend. How amazing, God, to be a part of that. So I just pray for us now as we go through this week, as we draw nearer to Easter, God, that we can have our minds set on who we can share this great hope with that you are the true hope of the world, God, that you are the love of the world, the Lord of all lords. We pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen.